0: Resiliency Within with host Elaine miller Karras is brought to you by Trauma Resource Institute Incorporated. Visit traumaresourceinstitute.com.
1: Welcome to Resiliency Within featuring your host Elaine miller karras In unprecedented times, our beliefs and well-being are put to the test. When we take the things we've learned in life and look at challenges in a whole new way, we learn to develop resiliency, which can then be used to promote healing and personal strength. Now, here is Elaine Miller-Karis.
2: Welcome to Resiliency Within. I welcome my guest today, Stephen Lesk, MD, who has been a practicing board-certified psychiatrist for almost four decades, treating thousands of adult patients while researching, writing articles, and mentoring students. He served as chairman of the Department of Inpatient Psychiatric Services at the Brooklyn VA Hospital and was also assistant professor at the hospital's affiliated medical school. He is pioneering new theories in hopes of improving our understanding of the illnesses patients endure, and also is dedicated to reducing the stigma. So we are here to talk about his new book. It's called Footprints in Schizophrenia, Evolutionary Roots of Mental Illness. Welcome, Dr. Lask.
3: Well, thank you so much. It's great to be here, and I'm excited to talk about my book and my theories and uh, schizophrenia and mental illness in general, which the book encompasses all diagnoses, not just schizophrenia.
2: Well, and Dr. Lesk, before we start talking about schizophrenia, because I do want us to to have a working definition, I'm curious about what brought you to be so dedicated to the study of, of people with schizophrenia and other mental health conditions. Was there something pivotal, a seminal moment in your life, for example, that that drew you to this area of study?
3: Well, um, dating back to my residency in the 80s, I was never satisfied with the explanations that psychiatrists have to give to their patients. You know, families would come in and say, well, uh, you've told us our daughter is schizophrenic. What does that mean? And all the attending would say is, well, it's a chemical imbalance. It's, it's genetic. It's connectivity. And these explanations seem very superficial to me. And uh, in all my reading, I'm kind of a diet-in-the-wool nerd. <laughs> I decided that who better to come up with something more detailed and deeper than myself. So I, you know, I enjoy talking to all patients, including schizophrenics. They're fascinating people. I did a bachelor's in psychology, a master's in psychology, uh, got my medical degree. I, I decided to broaden my knowledge base, started reading about anthropology, learning theory, evolution, and uh, started coming up with something that at a certain point I decided I I think I have something and I need to share this with the public. So I started writing the book and was fortunate enough to get it published. But uh, my goal is to deepen our understanding of schizophrenia, mental illness in general, and by doing so reduce stigma and help psychiatry in general, which is I think floundering a little bit on uh, knowledge expansion.
2: And I think it's you know I'm a, a licensed clinical social worker and worked in the field for many years and know that that families suffer greatly and sometimes there is that that kind of uh, that gap between okay this is what the your your family beloved family member has and, and so then now what? So I'm going to be really interested to, talk, to hear more about your ideas, too, about how to help families. But maybe we should start out with, with what is schizophrenia?
3: Well, schizophrenia is a chronic mental illness. Uh, usually starts around the age of 18 or 16 to maybe 20, 25. And these are wonderful people, but through no fault of their own, around that time maybe they're just graduating from high school or starting college they've had relatively normal lives uh, their thinking changes and it becomes uh, more concrete more primitive uh, less complex they start believing in things that uh, don't seem to make sense to the rest of us they may start withdrawing from others stop caring about their appearance they may say odd things, have strange behaviors, uh, such as uh, talking about the satellites controlling them or the FBI following them or food being poisoned. And suddenly it becomes clear to the family that something has changed in, in their loved one and that they need some kind of help. And at that point, it's imperative that they get the person to see a psychiatrist as quickly as possible. And and I so, would say this is a illness that does not go away. Once you have the diagnosis, it's a lifetime.
2: So it's a chronic condition. So, um, can you go into a little bit about what we know at this juncture about what causes um, schizophrenia? Is it a genetic glitch or an environmental factor or a combination of the
3: two? Uh, the problem is, we don't know. There is no one complete and satisfying theory of schizophrenia. Up until now, uh, all we have, like I said, are these phrases, uh, chemical imbalance. And we know that dopamine has a lot to do with it. And I'll talk more about that later. But we just don't have something that is very satisfying. And that's why I entered into this you know, decades long endeavor and have come up with something that I think fits uh, all the data we have about schizophrenia better than anything else.
2: Well, I, I, lo- I I can't wait till we get to the point of talking about your theory, your theories, but before we get there, right now, what is the medication treatment and the course of action that most patients will will um, receive right now in terms of of medical care?
3: Well, the standard of care involves what we call antipsychotic medication, of which there are 30 or more, uh, and patients, will always do better on medication than off. Unfortunately, schizophrenic patients are able to convince themselves that they don't have an illness and will often go off the medication, partially because the side effects can be fairly onerous. But it's always better if the patient is on a medication, their long-term trajectory will be higher and uh, their symptoms will be less on medication.
2: Have there been, um, uh, in your experience, are there ways that can help to encourage someone with schizophrenia to continue to take their medication? Because I certainly have seen the same thing and spoken to many families over the years. It's saying, well, as long as, you know, he or she are taking their medication, they do fairly well. But you know, there are those, those moments when they think, okay, I'm, I'm done with it. I'm going to go off of it. Is there anything in particular that you found has been helpful for family members or, or, People with schizophrenia that may be listening right now.
3: Well, it's a very tough issue, and it affects you know long-term prognosis. If you can convince the patient that medication is essential, that will really help things. Uh, another thing that's been developed over the past several years are long-acting injectable medications. So we had two-week medications, monthly medications... Now we're up to medications that last up to six months. Oh. With one shot, the schizophrenic can stay medicated for six months.
2: And have but, you found that since the injectable medications have become available that that people are, are more likely then to come back and get the next shot because they don't have to be worrying about taking that medication every day?
3: Usually they do. And not only that, but their insight will improve because they're consistently medicated and they have a constant blood level of medication rather than one that goes up and down every day. So yes, they're, they're pretty successful. There are some patients who say, I, I don't like shots, and that can be tougher to uh, convince them. But yeah, the, this is a very good strategy, and it's expanded over the years, and it's, it's working. But there are patients who aren't going to go for it, and uh, we keep trying to convince them to take their meds orally every day. And many of them do.
2: Well, that's that's very hopeful, and so and so how, exactly. You know, how many people in America today have schizophrenia? What what is the um, what is the incidence of um, of schizophrenia?
3: Well, it's one percent of the population worldwide. That means across all ethnic, geopolitical, and social boundaries, one uh, percent of the population is going to be schizophrenic. So in the United States alone, that's over three and a half million. Of course, worldwide, much more. So that's one of the issues that any theory has to explain. Why is schizophrenia so consistently 1% everywhere? It's called the anthropoparity principle, whereas other genetic illnesses like, let's say, Tay-Sachs or um, sickle cell anemia tend to hover in one uh, ethnic group. Uh, schizophrenia is is completely a non-denominational. It will afflict one percent of everybody.
2: So across all ethnic groups, right. in terms of, you'd find people with schizophrenia in in every country on the globe. Absolutely. And so you know, I and you say that this needs to. Everyone needs to be considering um, why um, schizophrenia and the treatment of schizophrenia is everybody's um, issue. Can you go into a little bit of why you believe that?
3: Well, like, like we were talking about, first of all, it exists everywhere. Uh, the onus is on the medical community to treat it every, everywhere. And um, it affects everyone. I mean, it's hard to run into a person who doesn't say, yeah, so-and-so. I, I have a relative who has it, a friend who has it, or my friend's family member has it. It's It's just so pervasive that we all have to be aware of it. But the problem is it's very much under the radar, even though it's so prevalent, you don't hear a lot of people speaking about it. And there's this unfortunate stigma. And I think the stigma is worsened by the fact that we, up until now, have not truly understood what schizophrenia is. And that gives rise to a lot of kind of crackpot theories, which have ranged from you know possession by the devil to some kind of uh, you know, infectious process, and of course, schizophrenics are not contagious in any way. They're not violent people, they're very passive, uh, fascinating people. So, unfortunately, that will increase stigma, and I'm hoping that my theory will help reduce it by gaining understanding into what it really is. You know,
2: and, and as I'm hearing you speak, too, I know there's so many portrayals um, in the media with people with schizophrenia, and it's often not portrayed in the best of ways. So I I, I actually very much appreciate how you're talking about the gifts that people with schizophrenia have and, and when they receive treatment, how they can have um, a very meaningful life. And contribute not only to their own lives, to their family's life, but to society. But I I think, you know, I'm hoping that we can talk before we get, you know, into the um, um, essence of your theories is that there have been a lot of blaming on the, I think, of why someone gets schizophrenia to bad mothering to all sorts of different things. Um, And I think this seems to be, to me, part of why maybe there's a lot of shame even in families if their family member has this um, particular condition, saying, oh, are they gonna think that we did something to cause this? Could you talk a little bit about, um, I know you're a lifetime member of the American Psychiatrics Association and you've been dealing with this for a
3: long time. Well, I mean, uh, through no fault of anyone, the patient or the family, of the population is going to be schizophrenic. There are certain things that increase the risk slightly, uh, like being born in winter months, uh, head trauma, drug use. um, But essentially, this is going to happen to 1% of the population through no fault of anyone. And uh, to blame someone is really adding more uh, insult to injury and uh, very much a shame, uh, and it's because there is has not been a very consistent, in-depth explanation of what schizophrenia is.
2: So your book suggests that schizophrenia has a connection to evolution. Maybe this would be a good segue. Um, in, in layperson's terms, what is that? What does that mean?
3: Well, what I'm saying is that uh, I'm re- reframing schizophrenia and mental illness in general in the context of recent changes in evolution brought about by language. You know, human-like animals, which we call hominins, have been around for millions of years, six, seven million years. Language has only been around 50,000 years, which is a drop in the bucket evolutionarily. And language radically changed how we use our minds. So we are still barely into this transformational moment evolutionarily, and not everyone is on board yet. And those who are least on board, we call schizophrenic and mentally ill. And if you think about it, it makes really a lot of sense.
2: So when when you were talking to a person with schizophrenia, I'm curious what you just shared with us. How would you explain that to them simply uh, in a way that, that would make it understandable for we mere mortals? I know many of us don't under, even understand evolution, so does, I, and I guess there's a two parts to my question, not only how you would go about explaining it, maybe it's just like what you just did, but um, how have they received this information?
3: Um, the schizophrenic themselves may be confused about it. You know, what I may just say is this is an evolutionary glitch and it's no fault of your own or your parents or anyone else's, but it's, a, it's an illness that you're going to have to deal with and we want to help you deal with it. So uh, I try to make it as clear as possible, but the families tend to show more interest, actually, in what... In, in what you're saying. Yeah.
2: Well, I can I can imagine that that would also be so true when you cuz I know that that there can be so much shame that's connected not only from the person themselves but from the families. And when you hear that there's an evolutionary component to it that's really biological, then oh, okay, this is not something that we did. This is not something this uh this is something that has been laid out in how we've developed as human beings. Um, that I think that would be a little bit soothing for me as a, as a family member if someone was to share that with me. So it sounds like you found that to be true as well.
3: Yeah, this is purely something due to the evolutionary moment that humankind is in. And unfortunately, some people are going to be afflicted with it. And uh, shaming and blaming is completely uh, inappropriate. And unfortunately, the stigma has kept people from kind of uh, accepting schizophrenics on a more human level. They're sort of shunned, which is absolutely unnecessary. And you'll find them to be fascinating people. And I should mention, there is a group of what we call high-functioning schizophrenics, uh, like John Nash from the movie A Beautiful Mind, uh, Ellen Sachs, who wrote the book The Center Cannot Hold, uh, weishan Wang whose book, uh, The Collected Schizophrenia, is on the bestseller list for months. Uh, Bethany Eiser, who wrote uh, Mind is Strange. These are all very high-functioning people who have schizophrenia. Now, that's not the average schizophrenic. The average schizophrenic will probably lose some expectation of functioning from their illness. But there's all gradations of functioning within the uh, diagnosis and I think that uh, as, as stigma goes down and acceptance increases, there will be a benefit to uh, schizophrenics feeling like part of the society that they're in.
2: Well, I'm wondering what what you just said in terms of the the people that you illuminated that have been very successful um and knowing uh, about nurture and nature, um do you think that when a person with schizophrenia has an environment around them with people that are you know loving, accepting, trying to learn information like you're sharing with us, and how they um, interact with their family member increases their chances of of being able to um I guess, have more self esteem and be able to, to uh, be in society and with their family and others in a, in a more productive way.
3: Yeah, schizophrenics who have involved, supportive family members do better prognostically than those who don't. And it's understandable that families get very frustrated at times, exasperated, and the tendency is to kind of uh, abandon the schizophrenic. But if they can resist that, and stay connected and offer support, uh, the patient will definitely do better.
2: So let's talk a little bit about your theory. Before we do that, I want to talk a, you know, a little bit more about dopamine. And could you explain just what dopamine is, why this is important for for us as human beings to know about dopamine and what dopamine does to our brains and our bodies? If you can explain that a little bit before you do a. Uh, uh, I guess, a deeper dive into your theory, but also to, to maybe address why are some people unable to process dopa- dopamine and others can process it well?
3: Well, it's, it's kind of a long story, but dopamine is a reward chemical. It's a neurotransmitter uh, produced in the brain. And uh, evolution made use of dopamine in the sense that evolution can only rule on, mutations you know if if a mutation increases your ability to survive and procreate evolutions all four if it reduces those things then uh it will go extinct Uh, the people with that mutation will go extinct but evolution cannot uh, rule on everyday behavior whether you get up and decide to look for a berry patch as a caveman or try to chase down a chicken and kill it uh evolution doesn't rule on that but dopamine can so if you do something uh, that benefits your ability to procreate like finding a mate or to survive like uh, finding food hunting hunting and gathering uh, you get a dollop of dopamine and it's kind of a pavlovian reward the more you do those things the more you are rewarded uh, intracranially with that drop of dopamine and that worked very well Uh, and served evolution well, and served humankind well. But what happened was, at some point, we got language. And that that came about because brain size increased. And over millions of years, it went from maybe 900 cubic centimeters of brain matter to our 1350 that we have now. Uh, Neanderthals had even more. Uh, And at some point, because of that expansion, language which involves symbol formation, uh, started to be used, especially by us, the Homo sapiens. We're really excellent at language. And that transformed everything about our brains. And for the first time, we were able to participate in our own thought processes. So we didn't need a chemical to tell us that it's a good idea to go out and find a mate, or it's a good idea to go out and look for breakfast it's a good idea to make a weapon to protect yourself from a charging bear. And we started to suppress the chemical dopamine. And this idea of dopamine suppression, and again, this is theory, a theory based on science, but it is theory. This came from uh, the nigrostriatal tract. I know it's, it's getting complicated, but there are four dopamine tracts, nigrostriatal uh, Mesolimbic, mesocortical, and tubero But the nigrostriatal is the movement tract. So as children, we learn coordinated movement. We play baseball and we run and we hit things with a bat. And we gradually learn to suppress dopamine in that nigrostriatal tract. But it wasn't until we got language and could participate in our own thought processes that we could suppress dopamine in these other tracts. And that became a crucial event because once we could suppress dopamine, we could participate in our own thought processes, we could adopt a much more complex way of thinking than the primitive caveman way of thinking. Uh, We could solve our own problems. And thinking also uh, expands the brain with certain chemicals like brain-derived neurotrophic factor and others. So thinking actually expands the brain in the same way that muscular activity expands a muscle. So the brain is very analogous to a muscle. If you use it, it'll expand. If you don't use it, it will atrophy. So the modern human is using their minds, expanding their brains, and suppressing dopamine. What happens with schizophrenics is that around the age of 18 or so, that all falls apart, and there's a huge rush of dopamine desuppression that brings them back to the primitive thought process of our caveman forebears. And that's kind of the basics of what happens. So can is go there and- any
2: way to predict this when the person is younger than this young adulthood age, that they could be more susceptible to develop schizophrenia? Are there any warning signs that parents, family members can pay attention to that could say, hmm, this could mean that your child may develop a more serious condition or not.
3: Yeah, there are warning signs, and there is a, a significant uh, attempt to identify what they call high-risk for psychosis patients. And with the theory being just what you said, if we could identify them with certainty prior to the onset of the schizophrenia, we could choose to medicate them before it happens. I was just reading an article Uh, Looking at seven-year-olds and the number of psychotic symptoms they demonstrate being related to family history of schizophrenia and also predicting that at age 11, they're more likely to have mental illness. But it's something that's not defined well enough yet where we can say, aha, so-and-so will definitely have schizophrenia in three years. Let's medicate them. But pre-schizophrenics do have certain symptoms to look for.
2: So certainly it's something to pay attention to. Um, we're going to take a short, we, I can't believe how fast the last 30 minutes have gone. Um, we're going to take a short break uh, and hear from our sponsor, the Trauma Resource Institute, um, and a little bit about them. And when we come back, we'll continue our conversation with Dr. Um, Stephen Lesk. Uh, this is a fascinating conversation. And I think one that, you know, especially when you say, um Dr. Les, that this is really something we all should be aware of. And maybe this also, I know that you're wanting f- for all of us to be more impassion- uh, empathic and compassionate towards people with this condition. I think having this kind of knowledge is one of the ways that paves a, a kind of a new roadway for all, us, all of us to think about um, what uh, may be happening with people with schizophrenia, the ideology, and also how we can treat them with respect in in the present moment, when we may encounter someone with this condition. So, we'll be back in just a couple of minutes and we'll continue this conversation.
1: America is on LinkedIn. Connect with us today.
0: The Trauma Resource Institute is a nonprofit organization cultivating trauma informed and resiliency focused individuals and in communities worldwide. Our mission is to take people from despair to hope. We believe in a world where every child and adult has the capacity to recover from highly stressful and traumatic experiences. Check out iChill, our free app that helps you learn the wellness skills of the community and trauma resiliency models. Go to TraumaResourceInstitute.com for more information.
1: Elaine miller Kerris' book, Building Resiliency to Trauma, The Trauma and Community Resiliency Models, is available on Amazon.com. This is Resiliency Within with Elaine Miller-Karris. To reach the show during our live broadcast, please call in to 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Elaine at resiliencywithin.com. Now, back to this week's show.
2: I am here talking to Dr. Stephen Lesk, and I want you all, any of you who are concerned about the mental health of America, to go out and buy Footprints in Schizophrenia, Evolutionary Roots of Mental Illness. That's I imagine it's available, um, Dr. Lesk, in all the places where we can buy books these days.
3: Uh, it's definitely available on barnesandnoble.com, Amazon.com. The official release date is Tuesday, but you can pre order it now and hopefully in other pace, places soon.
2: Wonderful. And so we, we were talking before the break, we were talking about dopamine. And um and its importance. And we were also talking about are there warning signs in, in children that we might see that could be predictive of developing? And I guess um if I if I'm hearing what you said correctly, it's there's a growing there's growing information, but it's nothing is really finalized about whether if a child has this condition, they may end up developing schizophrenia. Did I get that correctly?
3: Yes, uh I think. You know, if a child is talking about hearing voices, for example, that's a bit worrisome, but it doesn't definitely mean they're going to have schizophrenia over the ensuing years. Um, but that's something to think about and maybe bring the child to a psychiatrist about. But uh, we don't have it defined well enough yet who is going to become schizophrenic that we can say, okay, let's medicate them now and see if we can prevent this. Just not there yet.
2: Not there, but who knows? Maybe we will be there one day that we can, we can um, be able to predict that to be able to prevent some of the some of the serious side effects that some people have. So, if we can talk a little bit even more about your theory, it sounds like the dopamine um, uh, perspective is part of it. And can you can you tell us more about the theory that you've developed?
3: Well, what happened was once we got language, our relationship to dopamine changed. And we started down the road of dopamine suppression in these uh, dopamine tracts that weren't suppressing it before, the mesolimbic mesocortical. And that changed everything about our relationship with dopamine. And for most of us, it works quite well. As we learn language, we learn to suppress dopamine. We adopt a more realistic uh, frame of thought. Uh, our ego is enhanced and our brains are actually enlarged. When we learn language, your brain expands on the left side to accommodate everything that language is, at least if you're right-handed. So there's a massive change in how we process dopamine, and it's not just mental illnesses. Illnesses like Parkinson's disease, Huntington's chorea, Tourette's stuttering, restless legs, uh, possibly Alzheimer's, probably are in the same realm of being created by this new relationship that we have to dopamine. So that's kind of, in a nutshell, what we're looking at and what goes wrong. What goes wrong in schizophrenia is that this part where we suppress dopamine suddenly uh, breaks down and there's a rapid desuppression of dopamine. And that's something that we see not just in schizophrenia. We see it in people who use psychedelic drugs, we see it in all of us when we're asleep uh, and in, in the other mental illnesses that this desuppression of dopamine is a causative factor in this return to more primitive thinking. And it's the primitive thinking that uh, brings on what we call psychosis.
2: You know, he well, just mentioned something that I'm certainly seeing more and more of um, in the field of um, psychotherapy, and that is the use of psychedelics. Is there any connection between psychedelics and the development of schizophrenia or not? Or do we know enough about it to even be able to to talk about it intelligently?
3: Well, uh, the use of psychedelics can increase your risk for schizophrenia and other kinds of psychotic phenomenon. And and I think we have to be very cautious about promoting psychedelics. Uh, What they do is exactly what happens to schizophrenics when they break down. Dopamine is desuppressed on a massive level. Uh, All of the psychedelics do the same thing. They stimulate a serotonin receptor called 2A. And my theory is that once you stimulate this 2A receptor, there's a massive desuppression of dopamine. It's no coincidence that the newer antipsychotic medications all block that receptor 2A, serotonin 2A. So there's something about the 2A receptor that is involved with dopamine. And now we have a medication for Parkinsonism, which just blocks 2A, not even dopamine. And that has antipsychotic efficacy. So the psychedelics are triggering that, triggering this desuppression of dopamine, and patients are shot back very quickly to this egoless state, back to the type of thinking that primitive people have had. Now, the good thing about psychedelics is that They leave your system, and hopefully your mind can have a chance to kind of reconstitute, maybe even in a better way. But it's very iffy, and there are definitely reports of people who have taken psychedelics and not recovered at all or not recovered for months and months despite multiple treatments. Uh, I read an article like that just a few months ago in the American Journal of Psychiatry. Every treatment in the book was tried. Finally, they did find something to help this patient, and it promoted dopamine. Hmm.
2: Well, so it sounds to me that people need to be cautious about this kind of, I mean, I find it's almost like a, um, I, I don't want to, well, I have to say, and I know that there are many people that just swear by um, uh, hallucinogens, but it seems to have a certain, in my perception, a certain fad-like um, craze right now, uh, and many people are talking about it for those expansive experiences and sometimes not weighing the potential risks in my, in, I guess, in my opinion. So um, I'm I'm glad to hear you say that we need to be cautious about it.
3: Yeah. And they're supposed to be administered in a supportive therapeutic session. Uh, that doesn't always happen. So, uh, you know, I, I would be very wary of taking something like that. Uh, and by the way, Another article I read fairly recently was comparing people who used various drugs, ended up psychotic, going to an emergency room, and then they followed those people uh, with different drug use years later to see how many became schizophrenics. The drug that caused the most schizophrenia was marijuana, not psychedelics, not methamphetamines, uh, marijuana. So we're really playing with fire with this legalization of marijuana, and I think it's really a shame. People are going to get hurt by it, unfortunately.
2: Well, I'm 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 really glad that we've touched upon this subject because I think things like a course marijuana, which are so you know legal and very common, but I think that we're talking about there's risk, and here we're talking about schizophrenia, a very serious mental health condition, and that people need to weigh when they're considering what they're putting into their body. Other repercussions that once for some of them once that 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 course starts to happen, that there's no break to be able to put on it, you said it took many many um attempts for the person who came in who had serious symptoms after taking a hallucinogen, but I imagine there may be some folks that that's not gonna be the case, so people just need to be aware um as much as um people get excited about mind altering experiences i guess um,
3: yeah. I am and, be aware
2: yes, so.
3: Well, is, there- is much more powerful. I'm sorry. Go ahead.
2: Yes, I just. So, is there more that you want to say about your theory?
3: Well, um, let's see. The theory has a lot of implications, and one thing about schizophrenia is that I think there are a lot of red herrings, and uh, one of them is the word psychosis. You know, when we think of psychosis, we think of people who are crazy and yelling and screaming and uh, you know doing all kinds of strange things. Psychosis basically can be defined as uh, crazy uh, speech and behavior, but I think that we can explain most of what psychosis is by the fact that schizophrenics have regressed to a more primitive way of thinking, a way of thinking that children utilize. Uh, Children often say funny, you know, illogical things, and uh, people who are schizophrenic are using a similar kind of uh, thought rule or thought pattern, and that explains most of what we call psychosis. It's not an inner uh, generation of LSD or something like that, but it shows a regression to a more primitive thought pattern. The other thing is hallucinations. Uh, You know, if you think of someone who hears voices, you assume this is a very horrible, devastating phenomenon, and, and it is. But the truth is, we all hallucinate at night when we're asleep. And there's something called the Charles Bonnet syndrome, where elderly people who start to lose sight and hearing, they start to hallucinate. And the explanation is that, uh, as I said, the, the mind the brain is a muscle. And if you start removing the sensory input, the muscle is going to create its own input by creating hallucinations. And that's what hallucinations are with uh, people who have Charles Bonnet syndrome when we're asleep, and schizophrenics, because the center of their brain has now shifted away from this gold standard of conscious thought production to something uh, more primitive. And therefore, the higher executive centers of the brain are sensorily deprived, and they start hallucinating. So there are explanations for these things other than, you know, thinking of someone as totally bizarre and off the wall, there are explanations for why they're this way and what they're doing. Uh, Another issue, I'll go on unless you want to... No,
2: please, please, just go
3: on. Uh, The big issue of genetics, and that can be a very heated issue, Uh, according to my theory, schizophrenia is not a genetic illness. It's an evolutionary glitch, and... uh, it does not result from you know, bad genes uh, that 1% are going to be schizophrenic whether you have uh, parents who are schizophrenic or not. And we know that many schizophrenics have no relatives who are schizophrenic. Others do. Um, and we know that various things can slightly uh, influence the risk of schizophrenia. But we have never found a schizophrenia gene after decades of search. We have never found a schizophrenia mutation. Identical twins with the exact same uh, genes, less than 50% of the time are they concordant for schizophrenia. And you would think if something's uh, genetic, it would be 100%. Um, so, you know, Darwin was very clear that any mutation or genetic change that lowered your functional expectations and your reproductive rate, and schizophrenics have a much lower fecundity ratio or reproductive rate than the average person, is going to go extinct rapidly. Well, schizophrenia is not going extinct. It's staying at 1%, and it cannot be a genetic illness. And people will uh, kind of hem and haw over this and get upset and, and, uh, you know, argue that I couldn't be right. But if you really think about it, this theory makes much more sense than any theory that tries to pin schizophrenia on genetics. It just does.
2: And can I loop back, because we we talked about some things that could trigger someone um, becoming um, um, schizophrenic, but are there any other environmental um, uh, exposures that people have looked at in terms of ideology that have any credence?
3: Yeah, there are things that do uh, slightly increase your risk. Like being born in winter months, and people thought, well, that could suggest a virus. We've never found a virus that causes schizophrenia. Having an elderly father, again, that suggests maybe it is a mutation. We've never found a schizophrenic mutation. Uh, traumatic brain injury increases your risk. Being born in an urban area compared to a suburban or rural area increases your risk. Uh, you know, traumatic. Events during childhood will increase your risk. All of these things increase the risk, but the bottom line is we're going to see a 1% rate of schizophrenia across the board, no matter what.
2: Yeah, I have another question for you. I I sit on a number of um, international mental health collaboratives, and I often hear from some countries... um, where there's a complete lack of an understanding about schizo- uh, people with schizophrenia. I mean, I hear stories like people tied to trees, you know, the things that you said earlier about being possessed. I mean, have you in, in your experience, you know, what would you like to say to countries that have these kinds of philosophies? Is there anything in your, your way, your wisdom of thinking that you might, you know, I guess small over in your head about how we can help, you know, some of those kinds of, of, of situations to stop them. Maybe the information that we're talking about is the way, but I'm just wondering if you've thought anything about that. Uh, I know it always is so horrific to me when I hear what has done in other countries besides our own.
3: Well, I think that's a very good example of where ignorance can breed all kinds of responses to someone who's different. And, uh, the unfortunate truth is that we have not had a deep enough theory of schizophrenia up until now to to try to prevent these things. Now, certainly in Western countries where science is given credence and we know that this is an illness, not some possession by the devil or other uh, kind of uh, spiritual oddity, uh, schizophrenics are treated better. But it wasn't that long ago that asylums existed. That yeah. schizophrenics uh, were dunked in cold water baths, that lobotomies were given, and you know I'm not not totally critical of that because they had nothing else. Uh, Thorazine didn't come out until the '50s. Before that, we only had lobotomy or electroconvulsive therapy, and lobotomy was used to try to quiet very agitated schizophrenics, and sometimes it worked. But yeah. we have a history of Maltreatment of the mentally ill, which has only recently kind of uh, corrected itself within limits, but I think we have a long way to go. And I think the more we understand about something, the more light you shed on it, the more you see it for what it is—a a very harmless, interesting, and uh, you know, unfortunate condition. But it's nothing to uh, be afraid of, and, and uh, you know, tie someone up about or torture them. And, and,
2: yeah, so I want I'm going to ask you know, another question in terms of um, besides medications, um, and you said a supportive families or can be very important for the health of any of us, including people with schizophrenia. Um, um, are there other behavioral strategies like dia- dialectic behavioral therapy or other kinds of therapeutic interventions that ha- that in your experience have been helpful as an adjunct to medications?
3: Yeah, you know, I would say that. Therapeutic interventions can be helpful. Uh, Some schizophrenics are able to participate in them. Some are not. I think it's usually helpful if a schizophrenic can form a trusting relationship with a caregiver. That can go a long way toward uh, helping them stay on the medication, understand what they're going through, and and, uh, to have the caregiver work with the families to broaden their insight about it. All those things help. Electroconvulsive therapy, in certain instances where medication just isn't working well enough, can help schizophrenics. Um, We're using a cognitive restructuring to try to get schizophrenics to use the executive centers of their brain, which is the center that has kind of been retreated from by this primitive center of thought, what I call the primitive organization. And that helps when we can get schizophrenics to utilize higher mental functioning, that helps. Uh, these higher functioning schizophrenics that I spoke about, most of them have gotten through college. And that, I think, you know, reading, studying, learning, which uses higher executive function, definitely helps the thought processes. But not every schizophrenic is going to be capable or interesting.
2: Well, and, and as I'm hearing you speak, to it also, I think... Um, also amplifies what you're saying about in terms of if we reduce the ignorance um, regarding the condition, how that can change people's perspectives and even say, I mean, I I, I know that sometimes people say, oh, well, we wouldn't want to, you know, he couldn't go to college or he couldn't do this when maybe that's not the case. Maybe it's the <laughs> that person saying they can't do that, not that the person can't do it themselves, but it's like the kind of opportunities that we, you know, give to people that may help, like you're saying, the cognitive restructuring that can you know change those executive functioning um, capacities that may actually help them be able to accomplish um, a higher education or a certificate in something that they would like to do in their life. So to me, it's it's like there's multi phases of the educational process that that I'm hearing from you, and also that there are a, a, a whole variety of different. Um, interventions including medication and other things that can be helpful so it's not like a this is the only way this is what we know so far and let's look at the different things that can be helpful and i guess that brings me to my next question which is you know in your book you say that psychiatry is in the dark ages maybe we're talking a little bit about that already so can you say a little bit more about what you mean by that
3: well uh and i hate to put down psychiatry because i've been a psychiatrist for 40 years, and I'd recommend it to anyone. It's fascinating. But, you know, for example, if you go to your primary care doctor, you'll tell him some symptoms, they'll examine you, they'll do some tests, and then they'll come back and say, well, you've got diabetes, and here's how we're going to treat it. You've got high blood pressure or heart disease. Unfortunately, in psychiatry, we don't have a single blood test, we don't have a single x-ray, and diagnosis is very subjective based on what the patient can tell us. And sometimes they're in a good position to tell us about their symptoms, sometimes they're not. What families can tell us and the history of the patients. So it would be great and and every psychiatrist feels that we would love to have the blood test that says, oh, I, I ran the schizophrenia test and that's what you've got. But we're not there yet. And because we're not there, our treatments, even though we help a lot of people I think our treatments could be a lot better. Our medications could be more effective and can have fewer side effects and work quicker. Now, we help lots of people, and I encourage every schizophrenic to be on a medication. But I think with deeper understanding, we can shift our research priorities a little bit and maybe make greater uh, headway into the type of treatments we have to offer.
2: So um, in your book, you also say something that's kind of connected. You claim that, you know, in 20,000 years from now, there will be no mental illness as we currently define it. Why do you think that is?
3: Well, if my theory is correct, that mental illness is entirely due to the evolutionary moment that we're in. As we move along the next 10, 20,000 years, and that's a guess, we will leave behind uh, this primitivity that draws some of us back and we will be far enough away from it, like a gravitational pull, that no one is going to be uh, drawn back into that type of thinking. Right now, the momentum is with the six to seven million year way of thinking that we've had, you know, for that period of time. This new way of thinking is fifty thousand years old. But once we get farther from that, you know, six to seven million year uh, period, there will be no mental illness. Everyone will be able to suppress dopamine adequately. And uh, utilize this you know higher thought process, you know of, of modern adults and reality testing process that we have.
2: So oh my goodness, we only have a couple of minutes left, but I really want to a- 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 ask this question if you can answer this in like three minutes or less. but what advice would you have for someone who has recently been diagnosed with schizophrenia and the people who love them?
3: The first thing is that uh, they must, get to a psychiatrist quickly. Like I think I said, there is some evidence to show that the longer they wait before getting treatment, the worse the prognosis. Um, The other thing to know about schizophrenia is that each time there's a relapse, it's kind of like a heart attack. There can be some brain atrophy. So that the more times they relapse, the more we're losing brain functioning uh, on a permanent basis which is another thing that's so confusing about schizophrenia. We know it's not a dementia, but yet over time, there can be loss of brain tissue function. So the first thing is to get that person to a psychiatrist quickly, get them on medication, and help them stay on medication for the long haul. And that may involve switching meds to finding the one that's best for them. It's very individual. There's no one medication that's right for everyone. I will say that Clozapine is what we call the gold standard of medications, but it has many side effects and requires a weekly blood test for the first six months or so. So it's not for everybody, but with enough uh, trial and error, we can find a good medication for them. Hopefully, you can stay in touch with your family member. It's very tempting sometimes to abandon them when they've gone off medication time and time again. And even someone as brilliant as Ellen Sachs, who went to Yale and Oxford, describes in her book how for 10 times she went off her medication to prove to herself that she wasn't ill. And this is a bright one. You know, it's it's very hard for some schizophrenics to understand that they have an illness.
2: Thank you so much for coming on the show. I think you've really illuminated for my my listeners Um the area of schizophrenia, your theories and how important they are. But I just want to say, um, I also appreciate your compassion and your kindness um, towards people with this condition, because that's not always, um, (laughs) as you know, when they maneuver through their world, that they um, have a, a trusted person that they can talk to that has this perception about how to help them. So thank you for the work that you're doing. And I certainly hope that, that your your book and say your book, the name of your book, one more time, because we have one minute left and I want everybody to hear it again, but it's good to hear it from the person who wrote it. So say the name of your book.
3: Footprints of Schizophrenia, the Evolutionary Roots of Mental Illness. And I thank you so much for giving me the time to explain.
2: Well, Dr. Lesk, it's been wonderful having you. And for my listeners, I think we also can hear from him. I often end the show with this, what else is true? That sometimes, yes, you may have a person, you you yourself maybe um, have the condition of schizophrenia, but that there is help available. There are people that are working um, diligently to develop new theories, new ideas in terms of better treatment. And I guess I just want to say one final thing. Um, I have found that the National Alliance of the Mentally Ill, NAMI, um, can be really helpful for parents um, and for family members who have and for people with all sorts of mental health conditions to have a supportive network of very understanding people. So until we meet again, this is Elaine miller Carris signing off for Resiliency Within.